Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Ina Park about her new book, Strange Bedfellows. First, wanted to remind you about BooksOnPod.com. It's where you can hear all of our previous episodes as well as subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and plenty of other platforms. And for the latest on this podcast, give us a follow on Twitter and Facebook at Books on Pod. Hey, this is Mike Ayers, author of One Last Song, Conversations on Life, Death, and Music. You're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Dr. Ina Park is an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, a medical consultant on STD prevention for the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, medical director of the California Prevention Training Center, and the author of the book, Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Ina, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm hanging in there, Trey, which is the best any of us can do in this pandemic, I would say. No question about that. Now, this book begins <laughs> with a truly nightmarish moment that you went through as a parent in 2015. Well, what happened and how did it actually help birth this very entertaining and informative book? Well, you know, Trey, I have to say that as every parent could tell you, their nightmare is having their kid get hit by a car. And that's exactly what happened to us, which is that I was standing with my son and he saw his dad across the street. He let go of my hand. And before I could grab him, bam. So he was on the ground and, you know, I just heard him screaming. So I knew that at least he was conscious, which was great. And I started just going over the algorithm for what you do when there's a trauma victim And seeing that his leg was clearly broken, but the rest of him was okay, we ended up in the hospital that night in the intensive care unit because he had also sustained a skull fracture. And, you know, I was sitting at the bedside just thinking all night and unable to sleep. And then the next day, the neurosurgeon came by and they didn't need to do anything, but they wanted to check on his neurologic status. And he started grilling the neurosurgeon and he said, hey, do you know anything about herpes? Because my mom studies that. And, uh, you know, have you ever had it? And started asking him all these questions. And then he asked the chaplain if he'd had chlamydia. He asked the nurse, you know, about syphilis. And I realized, you know, this kid who was seven at the time was just so comfortable talking about these topics, not only because he knew it would get a rise out of people, (laughs) but because, you know, he's my child. And so he grew up, you know, with the fact that We talk about sex as a normal thing that happens. And because of the nature of my work, that STDs are sort of something that goes along with it. And so I never would have written a book at that time of my life. I had this newly invalid kid who had to have two surgeries, you know, for this leg. I had another kid in diapers. This is a terrible time to think about writing a book. But, you know, as many of your, I've been listening to your podcast and as some of your authors have said, you know, sometimes these traumatic events actually lead one to put everything aside and say, Hey, I'm going to pursue this thing that I really love. And so I decided before the next bad thing could happen to me, I should get to work and try to write a proposal and try to find an agent and sell this book. So I actually started the night he got home from the hospital. I just started on my computer and started the process. And here we are today. Although the starting point for this book in terms of the first chapter is herpes, what was the starting point for you in terms of thinking about how to address these various STDs or STIs? So, you know, it's funny, Trey, because that's actually one of the last chapters that I wrote, even Hmm. though it ends up being the first chapter in the book. And the way I thought about it was... I wanted to do something that weaved together storytelling with the science and some humor to try to get people interested in the topic. And the one thing I wanted to start with was I wanted to counteract the narrative that STIs are a result of being a promiscuous person or there's some sort of punishment for having sex. And so I actually started with the chapter on sexual networks first because people think, or the common wisdom is that The more partners you have, the more STIs you're going to get. And that's actually not the case. A lot of it has to do with certain groups of people who are having sex in time and space. There's just more infections there. And so if you have sex in certain sexual networks, you're more likely to catch an infection. And I give an example where if I was to have sex with, you know, 20 people who are my age, the likelihood of me catching anything is just incredibly low. So it's not really just a numbers game here. It has a lot to do with the age of the people that you're sleeping with, whether or not you're sleeping with more than one person at a time, 
So I actually started from that point and then built out around that to talk about the different specific infections. Yeah, those networks are the responsibility in terms of those who have to figure them out a lot of times of individuals (laughs) that you casually call sex detectives. So what exactly Uh is a sex detective and what's the best way to become an effective one, according to the work of former Colorado disease intervention specialist John Paterat? Yeah. So, Trey, I think many of your listeners may not know what a sex detective is, but they certainly know what a contact tracer is. We know about that from the COVID-19 pandemic. So contact tracers or these sex detectives were actually born. The whole position was born out of a need to control syphilis. And so um, these are the folks that if someone is diagnosed with an STD, will go and knock on somebody's door, or give them a call and say, hey, just so you know, syphilis is in your neighborhood or syphilis is at your doorstep and you, we need to find your partners and get them tested and treated. But the way to be a really good contact tracer or a sex detective is really to, as, as John Potter would say, one of the most sort of well-known sex detectives in our field is sort of see and be seen is what he would say. So he would go to all these bars and burger joints and he would hang out with sex workers and their pimps and he would just be around in the neighborhoods where he knew STDs were being transmitted and become friends with people. And therefore, if there were a new biker gang in town that was having a lot of sex with residents of the town, or if there were new drugs on the scene or an outbreak that was happening, he had all these connections. And you have to have these personal connections as a contact tracer to get people to fess up as to what's going on and who they're sleeping with, because that's a delicate thing, which is more fraught and more intimate than, you know, when a contact tracer asks you, what restaurant did you eat in, for example, for COVID-19? In this case, you're saying, you know, who did you sleep with and can you give me their name so I can get in touch with them? Contact tracing, as you mentioned, is at the root of working as a disease intervention specialist. Considering Mm -hmm. the seriousness of the rise of HIV and AIDS in the early to mid-1980s, how well-received was contact tracing with this STD through most of that decade? It was not well-received at all, Trey, and people were really suspicious of that. And folks in public health departments didn't want to do it, to be honest with you, because you were telling people that they might have this fatal sexually transmitted infection, yet we had no test for it. We had no treatment for it. So I think the sentiment was, well, why bother? Why bother telling people that they might be dying from this infection? So what they ended up doing was interviewing people who they knew already had the infection to try to figure out, well, what are the risk factors that are leading to this, as opposed to, you know, doing this really aggressive contact tracing. Now that would change, you know, when we have great therapies now, we have really amazing tests that perform really well. So now that practice has been reborn. So now, you know, health departments are doing contact tracing for HIV. Now that was pre-pandemic. A lot of health departments are not able to keep up with things like syphilis or HIV because all of their contact tracers have been deployed to do COVID-19. We're going to put HIV and AIDS on the back burner for just a little bit, may revisit that later in this conversation. But I did want to get to the subject matter of chapter one now, and that is herpes Mm -hmm. or the herpes simplex Mm -hmm. virus. I was interested to Mm -hmm. learn from your book that it was passed from a chimp or likely passed from a chimp ancestor to Homo erectus during some Mm cross-meeting some six million years ago. It was first identified in French medical literature in 1736 with a very Mm -hmm. esteemed sounding name, Le Herpes Genito. Not that widely reported (laughs) on, though, through the 1970s, in part because of a lack of treatment. So how did herpes end up making its way into popular culture in the mid-1980s, thanks to Time Magazine, of all things? I know. Time Magazine actually put out two or three pieces about the herpes simplex virus. And I think the one that is sort of most notorious is this one that they had a man and a woman couple in the front The entire cover is taken up by the letter H, which looks like it's painted in blood. (laughs) And it says, you know, today's scarlet letter. So some folks really blame Time magazine for fueling this sort of stigma around herpes, which still exists today, unfortunately. 
Yeah, and that fear-mongering is something that also became evident a few years later when HIV and AIDS entered the general public's vernacular as well. Are false positives a thing that people need to worry for when testing for herpes, especially those who don't have symptoms? And if so, how bad is this problem? Yeah, so that's one of the things that I talk about when I actually talk about how HSV is related to The Bachelor, which people may not necessarily associate One of the most common reasons that women who audition for The Bachelor are not actually allowed to participate is because they test positive for HSV antibodies. One of the stories that I tell is about a gentleman who was discharged from the army who got tested for HSV and ended up having a positive test. Come to find out, it's actually a false positive. And he lived this way for six months just thinking he had this incurable STI. And in fact, one of the things I discuss is that when you get a low positive result for these herpes antibody tests, 50% of the time they can be falsely positive. It's terrible statistics that we have and that we have a test out there that can give people so many false positive results. And then people are living with this diagnosis for the rest of their life. You know, it really gives us pause that we need to up our game in terms of diagnostics around HSV. As bad as it may sound on the surface, why are you for children contracting oral herpes, starting with your own kids? So one of the stories that I tell was when I was with my kid who was a toddler at the time and I kissed him on the mouth and I was thinking, I'm probably going to give this kid oral HSV or HSV1. And I said, well, that's a good thing. And I know that sounds strange probably to lots of listeners, but the thing that's going on out there, Trey, is that because of our you know, attention to hygiene that we have as parents today with all these alcohol wipes and trying to keep our kids clean all the time, they're not getting exposed to HSV-1. And then what happens is they get to college or late high school or whenever they start exploring sexually and they don't have any antibodies to HSV-1. So they end up getting genital HSV-1, or if they get HSV-2, they have no antibodies at all that will protect them. And so they'll get a much more severe response. So having some antibodies around to HSV-1 is not a bad thing. So I know people say, oh, you can't share cups and don't put your mouth on the public water fountain or any of those kinds of things. And There's actually some movement in the other direction to say, hey, let's expose kids to germs when they're young, and it'll actually protect them from getting illnesses later. Hmm. Even though I'm out of the singles game now, I've been happily (laughs) married for uh, more than seven years, have a couple of uh, Uh youngsters just like you do at home. I feel like when I was in that world, I would hear more about people having herpes than anything else. Has the number of people with HSV-2 gone up or down compared to somewhere like the mid-1990s when something like one out of five people had it? Right. It's gone down quite a bit. And that's part of the issue is that with herpes sort of starting to disappear. And now we're getting into 2015, 2016, instead of one in five people, it's one in eight people. So I think this is a good thing in general, but what it's doing is maybe making the stigma around it worse because there's just less people that you know that might actually have the infection. So if you do disclose to somebody, you're less likely to have someone say, oh yeah, me too, or have someone know someone else who actually has HSV. So in general, I don't want people to have to suffer with HSV-2 and those recurrent outbreaks, but I do think the stigma around it is quite strong because it's less common. And I'll give you an example, which I don't think is in the book, is that one of my patients who was living with HIV, when I told him that he had HSV, he just started crying and he said, I don't know why I'm crying. I didn't even cry when I was told I had HIV. Why am Mm. I crying when I'm being told that I have herpes simplex virus? So it's that stigmatized still. And by the way, for somebody who's listening right now, and perhaps this person already knows about this, just because you get Mm -hmm. that, it doesn't mean it is the end of your dating life. There are actually dating apps and dating sites specifically for people who suffer from STIs. There are. And I would say that I'm glad those things exist. And I would also say that so many people are living with STIs. We talk about this in the HPV chapter. Basically, every sexually active person ends up getting human papillomavirus Mm -hmm. at some point in their sexual life. And so I would just say to people, it's something that you have to talk about, but it is absolutely not the end of your sex life. And CDC just this week put out a statistic that one in five Americans has an STI currently. And so what I'm saying is we're all in this together. And disclosure is something that you do have to do, but you're going to find that 
over time, most of the people that you meet are going to have dealt with this in some form or another. Definitely wanted to delve into HPV uh, a little bit later on. Yeah. But first, we need to talk about Chapter 2 titled Bushwhacked. It's all about <laughs> it's all about pubic hair. When and why did Merkins or pubic hair wigs come to be? Oh, well, so the pubic hair wig was something that sex workers used to do when if they had an STI, like let's say they had a syphilis or something and they needed to hide an unsightly pubic area, they could put on this pubic wig and then get back to business. So then they ended up making their way into Hollywood because you have an actress who has blonde hair up top and then they dye her hair for the show, but the pubic area is still blonde. Then they need to put on a wig so that the head hair matches the pubic hair. And then some people are using them as fashion statements. Lady Gaga wore one at one of her concerts. And I mentioned in the book as well that there's a whole marketplace for them on Etsy. So you can buy any number of pubic hair wigs. You know, there was a Trump inspired pubic hair wig <laughs> called Make Merkins Great Again. And so maybe they'll have a Biden one as well at some point. Huh. And Merkins aren't the only option to decorate the pubic region. What is V-jazzling <laughs> so and I guess P-jazzling as well? And does this practice come with any drawbacks? I think it's so funny what people will do to their pubic regions in the interest of decoration, I guess. It's encrusting one's bare pubis with some sort of like Swarovski crystals or jewels, like a little bling on the genitals, you know what I mean? And I, I imagine it adds a little razzle-dazzle, but I think it gets in the way in the actual act itself. And folks who, you know, I read a lot of different pieces about this whole practice of bejazzling or pajazzling, and they, you know, they end up in their hair and someone found one in the dishwasher. Who knows how it got there? I'm more of the let's go natural approach, but I think there's lots of folks making money by selling this as a service as well. So I understand people should do what makes them happy. You do such a great job of balancing the humor with the seriousness of this subject matter. And while people mm -hmm. may be a little bit surprised to learn that endangered species made an appearance in the bushwhacked chapter, there is a good reason for that. How have our grooming habits affected pubic crabs? Oh, yes. The poor crab, Trey. Can I just tell you that none of my patients under the age of 40 have any pubic hair, and I do not know why that is. So people decided that pubic hair was the enemy. They're shaving it, waxing it. They're taking it all off. So the pubic louse has nowhere to live. It's a destruction, deforestation, destruction of habitat. It applies to pubic hair in the same way that it does to the Brazilian rainforests. So they have nowhere to live. I haven't seen one. It's been at least 15 years since I saw a, a pubic louse. It's a rare thing. It's like if you have one, it's like everybody in the clinic knows about it. It's very exciting. You know, in California, I don't know if this is a California-specific thing. I don't know. You're in Texas, I understand. Yes. There might be more there. But yes, you know, there's nowhere for them to go because they don't like to live in other kinds of hair. They don't really want to live in head hair. They don't really want to live in body hair. They're actually very specific to the pubic hair. They like the texture, the thickness, all of that stuff. But there's nowhere to live. What are you going to do? So 15 years without a single case. At least, yes. Wow. Pretty crazy to learn also that 3% of emergency room visits for genital injuries are due to pubic grooming. Among the grooming options, shaving down to the skin is something that I've maybe giving you too much information right now. It's something that I've never done before. I'm scared to do so. Is it that much harmful than those who try to use scissors or clippers on the area? Well, the thing about shaving, Trey, is that if you do it too soon before you end up getting together with somebody, like hooking up with somebody, then you've caused a lot of microscopic little tears in the skin by shaving really close. And so if you get exposed to a virus, you know, by just by rubbing up against somebody, now you have an area, it's like the soil has been tilled and you're spreading seeds all over it. And I tell a story about someone who ended up with a terrible outbreak of HPV related warts because they had shaved really aggressively and they had already had a little HPV in that area and they just spread it everywhere. Mm. And so we tell people in my clinic, I know you want to look neat and trim, try trimming and not shaving down. But if you really, some people really want to be completely shaved and I completely feel that. And so what we say is, okay, if you're going to do that, 
do it in the morning if you think you're going to get together with somebody in the afternoon, a waiting period, you know what I mean? To let the skin start to heal a little bit before you end up bumping up against somebody else. Chapter three is the garden of good and evil. It's all about the vagina. What is bacterial Uh vaginosis? Oh, well, Trey, that's a very, very common condition that can affect about up to one in four women in their lifetime. And it just means that the balance of the good bacteria that sort of keep everything healthy and balanced in the vagina, as opposed to other bacteria that can cause odor gets off of balance essentially. So you get an overgrowth of bacteria that don't really belong there. And then the bacteria that are normally populating the area diminish in quantity. And so what that does is that ends up causing women to suffer discharge and odor. And it's really hard for some women to get rid of this. And I talk about a story in here of a woman who ended up having the infection for more than a year before she could get rid of it. And how things like douching, which have been promoted over the years, because there's a you know big industry of sort of vaginal hygiene products, can actually disturb your microbiome in the vagina and make any problems that you might have actually worse. And so I think in that chapter, my take-home message is really your vagina is a self-cleaning oven and don't mess with it and don't put things inside of it. And if someone's telling you that you need to, then you tell them you talk to me and that I'm telling you not to put anything inside of there. (laughs) You you did enlighten me on the harm of douching and also the extensive history, which includes Lysol being advertised as a douching agent at one point. Were women in the early to mid-1950s really being guilted and duped into trying to make things smell piney fresh down there? Absolutely. And they had an entire series of ads which were targeted at married women that basically said, you won't be invited to parties if you have vaginal odor, your husband is going to cheat on you and it's going to be your fault. And that you can't be careless as a wife, that you need to keep your vagina in order. And so they said, you know, you have to use Lysol for douching always. And that's such a great idea. And essentially, Trey, it's like throwing a nuclear bomb in there. It kills everything bad, but it also kills all the good bacteria too. And sometimes, you know, your microbiome will try to repopulate the bacteria that belong there. But if you're vagina gets overrun with these bad bacteria easily, then you're just not doing yourself any favors by wiping out everything that's existent there. You detail ethically questionable studies at times in Strange Bedfellows, and that includes uh, some research that happened in the mid-20th century aimed at proving the primary cause of BV. What exactly were they Mm -hmm. putting people through then? So these two researchers took women, inoculated their vaginas, and put these bacteria that they thought would cause this infection inside of their vaginas. And then they also actually took vaginal fluid from women who had BV and put that inside of other women's vaginas. And the thing is, is one species of bacteria alone is not sufficient enough to do it. But if you actually take the fluid from a woman who is suffering from BV, put it inside of another person who is healthy, you can actually infect both patients with BV that way. And that actually happens for women who have sex with women. They share vaginal bacteria. And if one is actually suffering from BV, then the other partner can get it just from the fact that they might insert fingers or sex toys or things like that. People swapping bacteria back and forth is a pretty effective way of actually seeding BV within each other. With transgender men, for those who are Mm -hmm. unfamiliar, that is those born female who transition to men, what happens to the vaginal bacteria or vaginal flora? Many folks who are trans men actually take testosterone, right? Then the same thing happens under any hormonal influence, the microbiome changes. And so folks who might have had no issues before when they start taking testosterone might actually have their vagina act up just at the time when they're actually trying to transition into being a man. They might actually end up having these vaginal problems that they didn't account for. And last thing on the vagina before we move on to chapter four is <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow is Gwyneth Paltrow onto something with the vaginal steamers and jade eggs that she offers up on her Goop website. Oh, I would be remiss if I did not talk about that, you know, (laughs) and she's not the only guilty one. There are so many people who are trying to sell things that are going to improve your vagina. And I'm back to my original statement, which is that your vagina is perfect as is. But yes, she was selling these 
little thrones, mini thrones that you would sit on and steam and mugwort would essence would cleanse out your uterus, which you can't do anyway by sitting on a steamer. And these jade eggs that they said were going to unleash your inner concubine. And they claimed that Chinese concubines used these and that you would be a more sort of sexually appealing person if you use them. And I think you and I both know that that's not true, but I think they made a lot of money. So this goes back to just a lot of folks are going to try to sell you things. And I'm here to tell you, you don't need any of them. I'm calling BS on the vaginal candles too. Oh my gosh, I heard about those exploding vaginal candles. You don't need that either, Trey. Trust me. (laughs) Uh, Chapter 4 does cover HPV, something that you referenced a little bit earlier in this conversation. The human papilloma virus actually won a German virologist, the 2008 Nobel Prize in Medicine, for discovering the strains that cause cancers of the cervix, vulva, vagina, anus, penis, and throat. But you just said it. It is something that is extremely common, and a lot of times it will result resolve itself in the individual who has HPV, what causes it to become something so much more deadly? First of all, I'm so glad you're asking me about this, Trey, because HPV is my favorite STD, and I know you're going to develop one also by the time you end up uh, at the end of this interview. So the reason why it's my favorite is that not only does it cause cancer, but we actually have an effective vaccine against it. But to answer your original question, Basically, all of us who are sexually active are going to get HPV at some point, but there is a small percentage of folks for whom their immune system just isn't able to clear the infection. And so most of the time, 90% of people who get an HPV infection are going to get rid of it in two years. If you're part of that 10% that doesn't clear it, you might get rid of it a little bit later, but if it's one of these cancer-causing types of HPV, it will start a process of causing abnormalities in your cells. And that can happen in the throat, it can happen in the anus, it can happen on the outside of the vagina, which is called the vulva, or on the cervix. And over time, those precancerous cells can develop into cancer. Now, luckily for cervical cancer, we have a screening test, and we've had you know screening tests since the 50s, right, to look for those abnormal cells or to look for the presence of this cancer-causing HPV. Now, Cancers of the throat, for example, which are now more common than cervical cancer in the United States, we don't have a good screening test for those. So, you know, you have this virus that's incredibly common with a small percentage of folks getting precancers and cancers. But luckily, we have, at least for some, a way to detect. And then we certainly have, for everybody, a way to prevent with the vaccine. Yeah, I wanted to ask a little bit more about that. But first, why is it so difficult to detect HPV in the throat? You know, we don't have a good test like the cervix has the pap smear, for example. We haven't yet developed tests to test for, you know, precancerous changes in the throat. And to reach the areas where folks might develop cancer, you know, it's really just not that easy. Like if you're getting cancer in the back of the throat, the way to get back there might be to look with a camera, but you have to put that in somebody's nose. They have to be sedated. So it's not an easy thing to do. What some folks are experimenting with, Trey, is trying to test for those really bad actors for HPV, HPV 16 being the worst of them by having people gargle, you know, the back of their throat and spit out and then test to see if HPV 16 is there. But that doesn't tell you if there's actually precancer. It just tells you that the virus is there. Mm. And as we know, many people are going to have a virus, but not actually have precancer. Folks in the field are working very hard to figure out how can we develop a really good screening test for these throat cancers, which, you know, I told you are becoming more and more common. So for those unfamiliar with the HPV vaccine, what is Mm -hmm. the schedule protocol and just how effective is it at protecting that person from contracting an HPV that will then turn into cancer? Well, it's incredibly effective, first of all. So in terms of the schedule, which is your first question, it really depends on your age. That's what getting the vaccine before you actually get exposed is absolutely key. Once you've already been sexually active, if you've had a couple partners, you've probably been exposed to at least one strain. Now the HPV vaccine actually has nine different strains it protects against. So getting vaccinated earlier, you know, preteen years is best. And if you do that, you only have to get two shots. If you end up getting vaccinated after the age of 14, you actually have to get three doses and you get three doses within a six month period. And so if you actually get the vaccine before you ever get exposed to HPV, 
it is incredibly effective. The thing is, though, is that many people are unfortunately getting vaccinated too late. So we're not going to see, you know, 100% effectiveness of the vaccine because people are getting vaccinated after they've already been exposed. It's not going to do anything at that point. But in places like Australia, where they're vaccinating kids in schools before they actually have a chance to be exposed, for things like genital warts, they've had a 90% reduction in the cases of genital warts among the folks that are eligible to be vaccinated. So the likelihood of transmitting HPV if you are fully vaccinated, transmitting those strains is almost zero, I would say. Does a person washing his or her hands after their fingers are in the genital area of another person, (laughs) does that eliminate HPV? Well, I think you have to do a better job than most people do, Trey, because (laughs) folks have studied this. And even after people wash their hands, they found HPV underneath people's fingernails. Mm. And HPV can live on surfaces and whatnot. Now, I don't want people to get paranoid and say, oh, no, you know, HPV is around me everywhere. It's on the doorknob. It's on everything. I mean, HPV is around, but the surest way to contract HPV is still having, you know, anal sex, genital sex, or oral sex. And hands and fingers, sure, it's possible, but it's not nearly as likely as things like genital genital contact, which are more common. So I don't want people to get paranoid that there's HPV all over their hands and everybody else's hands. Just sing happy birthday three times, right? If not, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's a good rule of thumb for COVID, too. (laughs) That's right. This may be my favorite slash the most awkward question I've ever gotten the opportunity to ask before, but this is the subject matter of Strange Bedfellows. Who is the Elvis of anal HPV, and what has he uncovered in his studies? Oh, that is my mentor. His name is Joel Polevsky, and I'm sure he's going to kill me when he finds (laughs) out that I'm calling him the Elvis of anal HPV. And I want you all to know, which I mentioned in the book, it's only because of the magnitude of his celebrity. He, As far as I know, he has no addiction issues and, you know, he's not wearing tight white jumpsuits with uh, sequins (laughs) on them, but um, and no pompadour either. But he decided to actually look for anal HPV because it was not an area that people had been studying at all. And he is an openly gay man and was interested in studying men who were living with HIV. And at the time he started these studies, they were not living that long because there were not a lot of effective treatments. So what he found was that almost all of them had some form of HPV in the anus, whether they said they had anal sex or they didn't, it was essentially universal. And Only when people started living longer with HIV did they start developing things like anal cancer. Because we, you know, as I mentioned to you, Trey, most people who end up getting HPV, regardless of where it is, are going to get rid of it. But when you throw HIV into the mix, he found that it's much harder for folks to clear HPV. And so the rates of anal cancer for the population of HIV positive men who have sex with men can be up to 70 times higher than the general population. And is that mostly because of the impact that HIV has on the immune system? It just becomes that much more difficult to fight anything else that your body encounters? Yes, I think that's a lot of it. And some of the folks that he has been studying have been living with HIV for such a long time. Mm. And so I think in general, as we get older, it's harder for our bodies to clear anything. So that's why, you know, you may end up meeting folks who end up, you know, getting divorced and getting back out there. And if they get HPV again, it's actually much harder for them to clear it now than when they were, you know, 25, for example. So it's both a factor of folks aging and having a harder time with their immune systems in general. And then when you throw HIV into the mix as well, then obviously for some folks, it, you know, seriously compromises their immune system and then they're unable to clear HPV. Gotcha. Chapter five is titled Affectionate and Popular. How did gonorrhea acquire the nickname The Clap? Ah, so it's probably from the French Les Clapiers, which were the Parisian huts where the prostitutes serviced their clients. And I guess I'm calling them that because that's what they're sort of referred to in the text. These days we we call them sex workers, but Mm -hmm. it also might be because these poor folks with gonorrhea in the past, before we had antibiotics, what they would do is they would take a gentleman, take his penis and actually clap it between two wooden paddles or a pair of hands or two books. And so I know, I know. So the poor, I'm sorry, folks, 
listening in the audience who uh, have a penis. I apologize in advance. Be glad you don't live in the 1500s. I know. Just be glad that you're having sex now. We just give you a shot in the butt or in the arm and you're on your way. And it's it's so much better. More serious, though, why is concurrency, a.k.a. the overlapping of sexual relationships, so important when we're talking about STIs? Right. So just to contrast it, concurrency would mean like, let's say in the span of two months, you might have two partners and you sort of go back and forth between them, which is different than like having serial monogamy where you'd have a partner, then you're done having sex with them. You have sex with another person and then you don't go back and have sex with the first person. So the concurrency actually allows if people aren't getting tested and treated in a timely manner, right? Then if somebody has an STD and they have four concurrent partners, it's much easier for them to spread it in that little network of people than it is if they have a partner at point A and then another partner at point B and then another partner at point C, but maybe they're getting caught in between. So it's this back and forth tray of one person who has an STD going back and forth between different partners that causes this sort of transmission loop that amplifies disease in a population. And if you have multiple people having concurrent sex and even some that might be having sex with each other, you can just imagine that the ability to transmit just amplifies and amplifies in a sexual network. Yeah, no doubt about that. And chapter seven is a pox on both your houses. Where did syphilis, which I didn't realize this is actually one of the world's oldest STIs, where did it Mm -hmm. originate? Well, you know, we don't know for sure, but in terms of the first outbreak of syphilis, that was in 1495. And it was so devastating. They actually had to set up an entire second hospital system for these folks, and they had nothing to do in terms of treatment for these folks. I mean, they were essentially just incurable and were left to die a painful and terrible death, which is dark and dire, but that's how it was. And why is it known in the present day as the great imitator and one that is uh, very difficult to treat as a result? Yeah, this was one of the infections that first got me interested in STIs in medical school. And it can essentially imitate almost any condition, and it can infect every organ system. So from the brain to the eyes to the liver, the skin, whenever anyone comes into a clinic with whatever complaint, you know, they have a headache, it could be syphilis, believe it or not. So people just have to think about it, especially folks that are out there who might be listening who are clinicians. They have to think about it and they have to test for it. And the test is incredibly cheap. So that's not the barrier. It's just that people don't necessarily think that, oh, you know, I have an itchy rash. They don't necessarily think, oh, that could be syphilis, but it certainly could be. And, you know, I really take some pains to tell different stories in the book that illustrate the ways that syphilis can present. And sometimes they can be very subtle. VD may sound like an old school reference to STDs because it is. Venereal disease Mm -hmm. was the Mm -hmm. moniker for a sexually transmitted disease until the 1970s. Why did the nomenclature change from VD to STD and eventually in the present day STI? I think one of the issues was a venereal infection sort of implied that there was venery, right, or some sort of sexual indulgence going on. But we know that VD or venereal disease or STDs can be transmitted even for folks who are monogamous. And, you know, if one person had a partner before they actually ended up getting into a relationship, an STD can certainly be transmitted that way. So I think they wanted to change the label and the implications that it was associated with some sort of promiscuous activity to something more clinical and just say sexually transmitted disease. And then when we came to think about it, you know, so STD is still actually used and I actually used it in the subtitle of my book and where I work, the group is called the STD division. So we certainly still use that term, but not every sexually transmitted infection actually causes disease. And so A lot of folks are using the term STI because there are about three dozen different infections that can be sexually transmitted and not all of them cause disease like HPV can just sort of be silent and just cause infection, but not actually cause any problems. 
So folks felt like STI was possibly more accurate scientifically and might be less stigmatizing. And I think no matter what you call it, you know, you just don't want any of them in your pants. But (laughs) I want to use whatever terms are most accurate and the least stigmatizing. That's really my goal with this entire book is I want to reduce the stigma around these infections. And I want people to think about them as the cost of doing business in the sexual marketplace and that it's probably going to happen to you because it happens to almost all of us. And the stigma of STIs, STDs, VD, I mean, it has affected the medical community going back a little bit now. Uh, For instance, venerologists, they were outcasts in the medical community until the late 1960s. Who was King Holmes and how did he help to change that? Yes. So King Holmes is who I call the grandfather of modern STD research. And so he essentially started a program, an STD research program at the University of Washington many, many years ago. Gosh, I want to say five decades ago. And now he's got thousands of folks, including myself, who've been trained by him at this STD boot camp that I call it, where we go for two weeks and just get completely immersed and learn all the current research And so he actually committed himself to just training generation after generation of STI researcher. And he's still around, actually. He's probably almost in his 80s. But yes, he's still around, still training folks. And his descendants are now scattered all over the country and all over the world. That's great to hear. Chapter 10 is when the rubber meets the road. It's all about condoms. When did condoms first come to be? And what sorts of materials were they made of before the discovery of latex in the 1920s? So the first accounts of the condom were first written by Gabrielle Fallopio back in 1564. That was actually a condom made out of linen, and it was soaked in a chemical solution. And they actually tied it over the head of the penis and tied it into place with ribbons. And as you can imagine, Trey, <laughs> linen is not a very effective prophylactic. Not an effective prophylactic, but he said, you know, after he tested it with over a thousand men, he said, well, no one got syphilis. So this might actually work. And the idea was a good one. And so folks have used animal intestines, which would be actually fine for contraception. Small things like viruses can still get through, but folks have used vulcanized rubber. And then finally, we ended up on latex. And the sad thing is, is that we have not made that many strides other than we using latex. There are also some synthetics like polyurethane that are being used as well. But essentially, the condom has not had a big overhaul in terms of design in 70, 80 years. And you also point out that it's not just here in America that the condom is almost begrudgingly accepted at times. It's not popular around the world because it's probably Mm -hmm. never going to feel as good as skin-to-skin contact. But there are places where condom usage is much higher than the United States, such as Japan. Why is condom usage so much higher in Japan? I have two theories about this, Trey. And the first is that the Japanese produce the thinnest condoms in the world. And so the typical American condom is like 0.6 millimeters, which is about the width of a human hair. And the Japanese make these ultra thin versions that are about a third that thick. So I think maybe their condoms are better is one of my theories. But one of the other theories is that it was the last industrialized nation in the world to actually have other contraceptive options like the pill. Hmm. So they did not legalize it until 1999. And then places like the United States, you know, it had been in use for decades, you know, three or four decades before that. And so I think it's a, also a matter of essentially not having other choices. And with the government not approving it, I think people just assumed that they didn't approve it because it was unsafe. And so when it was actually approved, people were used to using condoms. So culturally, that's sort of what was acceptable. And even now, 40% of women who are married who need to use birth control actually still use condoms. It's much higher than any other industrialized country. 40%. Wow. Yes. How does the female condom work, and is it a truly viable option to slow the spread of STIs? I don't know the answer to that yet. 
the female condom, or now we're calling it the internal condom, is essentially it's made out of a synthetic material that's non-latex. So typically it would be something like polyurethane. And it's got a little ring in it. It almost looks like a sock. It's like a polyurethane sock. And it has a little ring at the end of it. And folks can actually insert that ring inside the vagina, or they can insert it in the anus, and then they can have sex. But one of the issues with it is that there's extra material that hangs out after you insert it. So it just doesn't look great. And Mm. some folks also said that I talked to that when they actually put it in and then wore it out just in case they met somebody so they wouldn't have to have an awkward moment to stick it in. And that some of the models actually squeaked when they walked. And so that was not a great mating call um, (laughs) when people were trying to pick up someone that night. So I talk about a woman in the book named Lisa Kinsella, who's an entrepreneur who's actually trying to redesign the internal condom. And I really hope that she's successful because I would love to have another option for folks who want to have vaginal sex or anal sex, who don't want to rely on their partner to use some sort of barrier for them to be able to have something that they can control themselves. I would love for that to exist. I'm hoping that she has success with that. And I wanted to spend the final few minutes talking about the future of this subject. As you talked about a little bit earlier, Mm -hmm. it is important that we not only have these conversations, but really strike the proper tone in doing so. It doesn't need to be this shameful, embarrassing thing where you're condoning the other person. There is a way to have these in a constructive manner that I think you do a phenomenal job in Strange Bedfellows, where you infuse humor. There's maybe a little bit of what used to be personal embarrassment for you, but stories that you're now sharing that really do relate to these stories that I think you did just a fantastic job on. So kudos to you on that. And maybe the most difficult conversations to have along these lines. And this is not just with STIs, by the way. This is with so many different things in this world right now where it feels so very fractured is having those chats, those conversations with somebody who doesn't necessarily see eye to eye with you. It is so important, even if we don't agree with that person, maybe especially if we don't agree with that person. And you give a great example of this from your own personal life. Would you mind sharing that example from your travels involving a flight to Vegas and a pro-life Bible study leader who worked for Walmart? Yes. I am so glad you asked me this, Trey, because even though this is the last story in my book, it's actually the first story that I wrote down when I was writing this book, because it was one of those moments that I had, which I'm not having now because of COVID, because I love being on the road. I love getting up in front of people. And that's what I do in my job is actually just train nurses and doctors about this topic about STIs and share my passion with them around it and the science. And what ends up happening, and I don't mean for this to happen, Trey, but people ask me what I do (laughs) when I'm sitting next to them on a plane. And I just feel obligated to tell them the truth. And I just never know how it's going to land. But this woman who was sitting next to me was wearing a sweatshirt that said, Jesus saves on it. She was wearing her cross. And I said, okay, she's clearly Christian. And, you know, she started chatting with me because she was just a warm and friendly person. And she shared very quickly her values and the fact that she was a mother and she was a Bible study leader and a Zumba instructor, by the way, on top of being a buyer for Walmart. So I had a moment of pause because I said, well, you know, I'm pro-choice and I live in Berkeley and I study STIs and (laughs) how's this person going to react to that? And I could not believe her reaction. You know, she, as a Bible study leader, she took her youth group to one of these large Lutheran retreats that they have, and they have workshops on sex and STIs. And she said they are standing room only. And her complaint about it was that they really only focus on the negative consequences of sex. And then she sort of lowered her head and she put her hand over her mouth and she said, I had sex before I was married. And I said, me too. And we just had such a laugh about it. And we had one of those moments where two people were very, like in terms of political views, very different, but we could share that bonding over, we're both mothers. We both want our kids to have a sexually healthy life. And she wanted to know, you know, what should I talk to them about? I want them to be informed. She said, you know, I'm hoping that they don't have lots of partners before they get married. But her philosophy was try before you buy. And I did not expect that, Trey, because 
thinking that being very steeped in Christian values that she would think you have to wait until you are partnered for life to actually have sex, to know that people are thinking differently and to know that they want their kids to be informed and make their own decisions was just a great moment for me. So it's one of the most important stories in this book, in fact. Yeah, such a great example of having the conversation with that quote-unquote other side. And finally, in the epilogue, you share your Michael Pollan-inspired seven-word directive (laughs) to help people choose sex partners in a manner that minimizes risk and thus regret. Why do you try to tie everything in Strange Bedfellows together with the directive, have sex with people that you like? So I came up with this because I, I said, I want to do something that people can walk away with some piece of advice. And then I realized you may not be able to avoid STIs when it comes down to it. So I said, okay, if we can't avoid STIs completely, even if you use condoms 100% of the time for every type of sex act, you still might catch an STI. But how can you avoid regret? And what I found in years of working in an STD clinic is that Folks who are having sex with someone they don't really know or they don't respect very much are the ones when they end up with an STI who have a lot of regret. So if you find something redeeming about the person, it's a little bit easier to cope with the diagnosis of an STD or an STI. And so that's why I came up with, I said, it's only got to be seven words, just like Michael Pollan's. So I came up with have sex with people that you like. And I said, well, people are going to be offended because they're going to say, you should have sex with people that you love. And I said, well, that's true. But it's like Gandhi said, like, I can't tell people to do things that I haven't done myself. And so (laughs) um, I said, I can't say that. I can't say you can only have sex with people that you love. But I did say, and if you're only having sex with one person, then like that person. If you don't like that person, try to get out of that relationship. Because I said, life is too short for that. A friend of mine actually sent this to Michael Pollan this little section and he thought it was hilarious. Oh, excellent. And he added, yeah. So he added, cause his whole thing is eat food, not too much and mostly plants. So he said, you know, we could add mostly humans. And I said, Michael, that's too kinky. We can't do that. <laughs> so, oh, man. so anyway, so that's my only advice. And also the other thing is just for parents to talk to their kids and include STIs in the conversation that parents should not put the pressure on themselves to try to do it all in one talk because it's not one talk. It's two or three dozen talks. So those are the two pieces of advice that I give in the book. The rest of it, I'm trying to sort of entertain and inform and fascinate people. Dr. Ina Park is an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, a medical consultant on STD prevention for the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, medical director of the California Prevention Training Center, and the author of the book, Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Ina, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this funny, informative book. Thanks, Trey. I appreciate it. And thanks to you for listening. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes as well as subscribe to this podcast at booksonpod.com. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.